and welcome back to the Sockdem Asia podcast. My name is Cassie. I am your host and I am joined by my co-host, Carlo. Say hi, Carlo. Hello, it's me again. Yes. So, hello everyone and welcome back to our program. We are very excited to bring this very special episode to you and we're going to be talking all about transgender feminism, transfeminism, intersectionality. And for this topic, we are joined today by a very special guest. She's a doctor. So we are joined by Dr. Chamindra Weerawardhana, who is a research affiliate for the Center for Gender, Feminisms, and Sexualities in the University of College, Dublin. She was also part of the Executive Committee of the Labour Party in Northern Ireland, and in a separate vote was made the party's LGBTQI plus officer. So Dr. Chamindra, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Cassie. Hello. Lovely to uh, meet you. Hello, Dr. Yes. Chamindra. Nice to meet you. Hello, Carlo. Lovely to meet you too. Yes. So I don't know if it's partly my culture or I'm just so excited. I think you're the first doctor that we've had on the program, even if oh. I, I don't. Are you a medical doctor? Or like, no. <laughs> uh, no. Well, my my discipline is international politics. So okay. I completed um, a few years ago a PhD in comparative conflict analysis, mm-hmm. looking at the peace processes in uh, Northern Ireland and in Sri Lanka. Okay, so that's fine also. So you're a doctor of peace, which I absolutely love. <laughs> All right, so we've brought you onto the program to talk to us about transfeminism in Asia. So there's so much to unpack when it comes to uh, this concept. Like, I have a feeling that this is something that we're going to have, have to explain for our audience. So we're expecting that our audience has like a basic understanding or even no understanding of this idea. So I think we need to start with a very, very, very basic question. So the first question of this podcast will be, can you tell us what is gender? Okay. So one of the easiest ways to um, explain what gender is, uh, is to um, say that gender is a social construct. So it is, um, uh, it is how one relates to oneself. It's all about that. And uh, the thing to remember when you talk about gender is that it's very diverse, you know. So what gender means in the local context of the Philippines may not necessarily be how it is understood in Indonesia or in Thailand or in Papua New Guinea. Uh, so gender conceptions, notions, understandings, and um, ways in which people live their gender changes from one, um, one, one context, one social cultural context to another. So this is a key factor. So gender in uh, the, the easiest and the most simple way to explain gender is that it's, a, it's an integral part of our lives and that it's gender is very much about who we are and how we present ourselves to the world and uh, how, um, how our societies, our cultures, our, uh, our backdrops have also had an impact on, uh, on, on constructing uh, notions and ideas and perceptions of gender. Okay. Uh, I'm very interested in the thing that you said about how gender is different across contexts, or at least rather the understanding of a place around gender varies. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Like how how would gender differ from context to context or the understanding of it? Surely. And for example, when you uh, go to the Pacific Islands and you go to the, King, uh, the island of Samoa, for example, you uh, see um, 
different gender identities that are very specific to that context. So you have Fafafine people, for example, Fafafine women who, um, who are very active in trans rights circles, but they, are, they, they take their indigenous gender identity very seriously. So that is, uh, it's, a, it's an integral part of who they are. Now you go to Aotearoa, New Zealand, you have um, this definition of takatapui. It's a Maori, in a Tereo Maori language. Takatapui means um, a rainbow person, a non-heteronormative or a non-cisgender, non-cisnormative person. So um, today the word takatapui uh, includes indigenous people, Maori people who are not cisgender, who are not um, uh, heterosexual as well. So, uh, and also intersex people are included in that. So, and then when you uh, come over to Indonesia, when you go to Bali, for instance, you have the local Varia communities. And uh, in Thailand, you talk about Kathoi communities. And when you go to the Indian subcontinent, once again, there's a lot of diversity uh, when it comes to gender identities and gender expressions and indigenous traditions of gender. Uh, you have the Hijra, communities and um, and then uh, the Kawajazera communities and so on and so forth. And when you come to the part of the world where I am talking to you from today, um, the Pacific coast of, uh, uh, of, of the indigenous territories we know as Canada, in all the indigenous communities of uh, this part of the world, you do have uh, two-spirited people. So two-spirited communities and two-spirited identities are all about um, different forms of different expressions and identities of gender that are different from uh, what we know as male and female, or to be more precise, I would say cis male and cis female. The word cis in there means they, that um, cis or cisgender means that somebody who's, um, whose gender assigned to them at birth is the same uh, gender that they uh, uphold, but um, so where there is no incongruence, there's no discrepancy. So if you're, if that is not the case, you you are of a different gender identity. So um, you, in most, in quite a few cultures across the global south, you can see these variations, uh, differences, and and so on. And one thing the, that needs to be said is that as a result of uh, different forms of colonial rule, um, especially um, Christian missions coming in and so on and so forth, where there is a very clear understanding of the uh, of the Abrahamic notion of the gender yeah. binary. Um, a lot of these indigenous communities, indigenous gender identities have been, um, have been pushed back, have been uh, pushed to the margins of societies. So um, today, when you try to think in terms of gender, it is also important to think of these difficult histories that we mm -hmm. all share. So I, I'm also, I'd, I'd also like to ask though, um, since we're also in, in, in trying to unpack the term of gender, since I guess for a lot of the listeners, uh, many many have this confusion regarding discourses, discussions on gender. Since, can you help us also? One of the, I think, biggest confusions as well is when people um, discuss two different concepts that that might not might be confused as being similar. And I'm talking about when people talk about gender and sex. Can you mm -hmm. discuss what's the difference or what's the difference and where they might 
um, how do you say it, intersect or where they might relate? Right. Um, okay, Carlo. So um, there are, when it comes to um, sex, uh, it is once again a very um, complex area we are looking at. So you're getting closer to biology there. Mm. So the general tendency, you know, you know the way some uh, transphobic uh, people um, yeah. who, who campaign against trans people uh, tend to come up with this argument that, okay, sex is always binary. That is either male or female, but that actually is not the case. So sex mm. uh, or the sex characteristics that someone is born with uh, can correspond to what we know as what we understand, what society generally understands as male or to what society generally understands as female, or it can be other sex characteristics somewhere uh, in between, somewhere uh, that um, in as a certain forms of sex characteristics that do not comfortably fall into those boxes, you see. So sex is very much, uh, I would say, um, uh, the each person's, you know, um, uh, each person's, uh, uh, what has been assigned to them at birth in terms of, you know, looking in terms of physical anatomy. Uh, but, uh, and, and then if you look at sexual orientation, it's also once again, each person's capacity to, you know, um, feel profound, I would say emotional uh, or affectional or sexual attraction to uh, um, uh, individuals of a different gender of the, of the same gender. So sex is very much in the realm of biology, but what, and what we need to understand most importantly is the fact that sex once again is a very moving, very, it's not very conforming. There's no conformity in sex. So that is why um, uh, the uh, intersex rights movement um, is making this claim very loudly because um, in the world we live in, unfortunately, when someone is born, when a baby is born with sex characteristics that don't yeah. comfortably correspond to uh, male or female, uh, then uh, mm. that baby is seen as um, a baby with a kind of a, within inverted commas, a problem to put it bluntly. Mm. And there have been many cases of um, uh, intersex babies, um, babies with you know different sex characteristics who have been subjected to repeated surgeries, for instance, without their consent. Yeah. And actually at the end of the day, medical research has found out that such surgeries are not required, right? So, mm -hmm. so gender, when we come to the realm of gender, we are talking about something different. So gender or gender identity, for example, it, it kind of refers to each person's, I would say, deeply felt internal, um, an individual experience of this gender. So it may not correspond uh, to the sex as the, yes. assigned to them at birth, you know. So, um, uh, and, and this is the key, key point to remember there. So some people try to think, okay, right. Um, okay, gender is diverse, but sex is black and white. So it can be either female, male or female, but it's not mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Sex, once again, biology is, is, is the most it's, diverse thing yeah. you can come yes. across. Yeah. yeah. yeah like, so very... sex is also a spectrum. 
Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so you brought up so many, so many like juicy tidbits that came out while you were speaking. Like there are some, there are some strands of feminism or some strands related to feminism that are very rigid or intolerant when it comes to talking about sex. That there are intersex babies who are who suffer as a result of society trying to force them into like the male or female box, which I think really perfectly opens up the next thing I want to ask, which is why is there a need for activism centered around gender? Okay. Uh, so for that, Cassie, uh, the need for activism or advocacy centered around, you know, the theme of gender, it is because primarily the straight, straightforward answer to your mm-hmm. question is it is because of gender-based discrimination. Mm-hmm. and gender-based violence and yeah. uh, gender-based, I would say, systemic discrimination because mm-hmm. there is a system in place yeah. that that discriminates against people based on issues of gender, right? Mm-hmm. So that is where we need to talk about and mobilize about and engage with um, and develop activist frameworks and solidarities and movements to um, discuss and to raise awareness about gender-related issues. So the the need comes from uh, the uh, many forms of discrimination that people suffer. So um, uh, so gender also involves the, another way of looking at the answer to your question is, um, we live in societies where there are gendered hierarchies. So mm, yes. people of certain genders, of a certain gender, let's say if you're a, a cisgender man, yep. a cisgender heteronormative man, mm-hmm. also, uh, let's say if, if the stars align and if you are from a quite a wealthy, influential yeah. background, um, mm. you wield more power in a society mm-hmm. than, let's say, um, a, a cisgender a queer woman from an underprivileged background. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So there are many stratifications to look at. So we live in societies with gender hierarchies and those of us who find ourselves in the, I would say the, the lower echelons of the hierarchies yeah. face a great deal of discrimination. And um, so from an intersectional feminist perspective, from a social justice perspective, from um from a basic human rights perspective, um, it can be very clearly established that society doesn't need to be like that. We can, uh, mm-hmm. we can uh, envisage, we can envision a different type of society where people, where all of us sit on an equal footing and where people are treated with dignity and with respect, uh, irrespective of one's gender. So that is where uh, it is because of all these forms of these multiple forms of discrimination that people Mm -hmm. face uh, that we need to uh, think in terms of activism, advocacy, awareness raising about gender. Yes. Yeah, and, and and Dr. Chaminder, you also point out because of these kinds of structure that, that exist, right, that, that uh, enforce these uh, hierarchies, but there's also um, I'd, I'd like to also point out, but because there are also real dangers to people who are who do not fit to those gender yes. norms, right? Like there, there is actual violence being committed, uh, killings, etc. So, Absolutely. for progressives, we, you have to. It uh, and I really appreciate how you pointed it out that you have to envisage or in, imagine a different kind of fairer, a more humane yeah. 
more uh, caring yeah. kind of society in the future. So, uh, yeah. So I, I like to point out that that's that really stresses the need on for activists, not just for uh, people who identify, I guess, as feminists or trans feminists, but even across the board. Right? It should be part across of the the, yeah. the dialogue. Yeah. Hundred percent. So there was also a mention about intersectional feminism. But of course, that's not the only strand of feminism that there is. So I kind of want to ask about uh, the intersection between the transgender rights movement and the feminist movement. Like both the parts that we love and we embrace because it forwards liberation of everybody across the board. And the parts that we are not, that, hmm, like that's not, where are you coming from? Like why, why is that? your belief system. So I want to ask about uh, what you can tell us about the feminist movement and transgender rights coming from your perspective as a gender scholar. Uh, sure, Kazi. So now that question, uh, the when I hear that question, what I'm thinking of is from where am I going to start? Uh, <laughs> so the, 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 that's the that's what is uh, complicated about that question mm -hmm, because yeah. when you say uh, feminism uh, to me feminism is a noun that is mm -hmm. very difficult to use without a qualifying adjective in front yeah yeah so true. for example you have uh, when you go to Aotearoa, New Zealand, you, are, uh, you have a very strong indigenous feminist movement uh, developed by very powerful mm -hmm. trailblazer Maori women. And when you come to Canada, you have an indigenous feminist movement developed by women uh, from different indigenous communities of, of, uh, of this country. And uh, when you look at the United States, you have again, different feminist movements. Mm -hmm. You have uh, black feminism, which yeah. has been developed by especially African-American women, uh, Latina feminism, and once again, indigenous feminisms in the United States and mm -hmm. so on. And then when you think of the global North as a whole, by the global North, I mean North America, uh, the European Union, NATO member yeah. states, Australia, New Zealand, so those countries, you also can think of women of color feminism. So women who are from migrant backgrounds, whose roots are in the in, in different parts of the you know non-Western worlds, who uh, develop their feminist discourses. So feminism to begin with is a very complicated matter in that sense. Yeah. So uh, there is not one feminism, there are many feminisms mm -hmm. yeah. in the plural. Yeah. And uh, so when it comes to trans rights, once again, how people understand trans rights, it's very different at times from one society to another. So um, in the United States, for instance, uh, for many, many decades, there have been a certain kind of a trans movement, but at the fringes of society. So um, there's this, um, uh, scholar who has written a book about C. Riley Snorton, you call them uh, a trans man, uh, who's written a book about the history of black trans identities in the United States. So uh, that kind of work shows that trans people have always existed. They've tried to develop their support movements, their support networks, their, their rights movements, but at the fringes of society. And 
over the last decade we have seen that trans people have gained a lot of visibility the time yeah. magazine called it in 2014 the transgender mm-hmm. tipping point with the yeah, with laverne yeah mm-hmm. on the cover so um in other parts of the world as well you see uh, trans people quite active in public life here in canada in the united kingdom mm-hmm. in uh, and in many other places in the western world so um however when you go to a place like india for instance you have or anywhere in the indian subcontinent you have uh, variations of uh, when it comes to uh, trans uh, rights because it's not a monolith because you're talking about um, okay trans people fair enough but at the same time you're talking about hijra people we are talking about kawajazara people you are talking about um, you know indigenous identities so um, not all gender non conformity can be put in the box of trans rights so um, trans rights once again in that case trans people are very diverse people so there is no uh, one size fits all so you're talking about a very diverse global community of uh, of people so on that understanding the question you're asking about is trans rights and the feminist movement um two things one is there are some feminist movements that have actually i mean been very inclusive of yeah. trans people from the onset for many decades there are long histories in some feminist movements i'll t- i'll give an example in a second but there are some other feminist movements where the emphasis has been on uniformity so yeah. uh, and and imposing certain conservative values through a feminist through a supposedly feminist discourse yeah. and and those discourses um are very averse towards or are very much against the existence and especially public existence of trans yeah. rights and uh, uh, th- those feminist discourses kind of uh, are are opposed to um consolidating trans rights let's say in a legislative yeah. way if you mm. want to bring in a trans rights act or if you want to create um facilities or support yeah. networks for trans people uh, these feminist networks can be opposed so uh, broadly speaking we can think of these two categories and uh, for the first category i give the best example one can give is black feminism in the united states now black feminism emerged as a uh, as a as very much a social justice movement um developed by black women uh, coming out of slavery um from very difficult circumstances of poverty and discrimination and sexual violence so black women bore the brunt of um uh, labor during slavery and then also um in the um, in in certain sciences for instance gynecology what we know as western gynecology oh, yes. mm-hmm. uh, was yes, yes, built yes. on the bodies of black women yes. uh, who were subjected to repeated surgeries without yeah. experimentation so basically on. experimentation on black women's bodies so uh, black women carry a lot of trauma a lot of pain mm-hmm. and yeah. it is um black feminism was very much a way of addressing those very difficult issues and developing solidarity among black women mm-hmm. so the black feminist movement has always had 
this dimension of inclusivity. So uh, what we are doing is we are trying to bring women together. We are trying to understand what's going on and we're trying to give a sister a seat at the table, right? So um, we will keep on stretching the length of the table. That is the kind of principle in black feminism. So uh, the best example is uh, for uh, for the, the um, uh, uh, audience, I would say, the Kombahi River Collective Statement. It's a statement mm-hmm. written by a group of black feminist activists, queer feminist women uh, in 1977. So the Kombahi River, C-O-M-B-A-H-E-E. The Kombahi River Collective Statement, it's freely available in the public domain on the internet. Uh, now, that statement is very relevant to um, today's debates, although it was written so many years ago in 1977. So Mm. basically what they're saying is, okay, we are uh, lesbian, cisgender, uh, black women, but, uh, and we have specific issues that concern us and that concern our lived experiences, but we can develop solidarities and sisterhoods with uh, black women who are heteronormative and we can think of working together uh, on issues that concern us together. So let's develop, let's, let's kind of look at um, feminist work from a perspective of what unites us is stronger than what divides us. So this principle has been very strong in black feminism. So um, uh, black feminist work, the great black feminist thinkers, Dr. Angela Davies, uh, Audre Lorde have uh, consistently stood for the rights of trans people, especially black trans people. Now, the second category of feminism I was telling you about that uniformity in feminism, you can see that very well in the United Kingdom. And some people call it white feminism because Mm -hmm. white feminism, why white feminism? Because mostly uh, it is um, a discourse upheld by upper and upper middle class, um, Mm -hmm. white cisgender women. Mm -hmm. Um, There are the, 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 the roots of that lie in a certain tradition of seeking uniformity, you see. So, um, gender segregated schools, for example, that exist in our countries in the global south. Where did those come from? Uh, yeah. They didn't appear like mushrooms, right? They were imposed oh, on yeah. us by our colonial powers. Mm-hmm. So these discourses, these white feminist discourses or um, these more rigid feminist ideas, they are about establishing uniformity. So, okay, in society, we have a certain role assigned to a woman, a cisgender woman. There's a certain role assigned to a cisgender man. And there, there is a system in place and we want to maintain that system. That is the kind of discourse that they are upholding. And yeah. it comes in different forms. You know, they may say that, okay, they stand for women's rights. But if you look closely, it is more than women's rights. It is a uni, it is social, it's a kind of a uniformity in society that they're looking for. Because when you think of trans rights, what trans rights does is questioning how our society functions, right? For example, let's say um, a school, a gender segregated school, right? Uh, we're meant for a girl's school or a boy's school, which are very common in some of our Asian countries. Yes. Now, if you wanted to develop a trans perspective, trans rights perspective, 
to education you can't run a gender segregated school you will have to mm. make the school coeducational you will yeah. have to have a uniform policy you will have to teach consent education gender justice education mm-hmm. uh, from the nursery and you will have to accept that children are different and that children have different forms of gender expression and that children are entitled to um, to explore who they are Mm-hmm. um and and to be creative uh, so uh, and to and to um, not suppress who they are many of us had to suppress my parents when they saw uh, a, a non conformity at a very young age put me in one of the most elitist boy schools in sri lanka and it it was a nightmare for me but so so that kind of thing will not be possible so uh, if you want to if you look at it in another way let's say you menstrual justice right yeah. so when you say menstrual justice what we are talking constantly about the 98% 99% of the dialogue is about okay um, women's rights it's a women's rights issue right yeah. menstrual justice yeah. now but, you bring in a mm-hmm. yeah if you bring in a trans rights perspective uh, okay uh, menstrual justice yes and it is a women's rights issue yes mm-hmm. but it is not only a women's rights issue yeah. it can be it can be it, menstruation could concern men and women so now for example let's say you want to make uh, sanitary products available in restrooms well you'll have to make them available in the female restrooms as well as the male restrooms yeah right? if you want to do it right according to a trans rights perspective so it's a quite a progressive discourse when you are inclusive trans rights work is all about progressive social transformation and yeah. that is why the powers that be don't like society to change in that kind of progressive direction yeah. so most of the rights we have are rights that we have been fighting for our mm-hmm. our predecessors our ancestors have been fighting for for many decades so this is where there is a, some feminist movements are being used especially you know white feminist movements or better known as trans exclusionary feminist movements are being used to maintain a certain uniformity in society right so that is where the so so trans rights and feminist movement intersect whether the the another way of answering your question kasi uh, sorry i took a bit long for this um, no another way of answering it in one sentence is that trans rights and feminist movements intersect in inclusive and quite cosmopolitan feminist movements developed specially by women from marginalized backgrounds right uh, and um especially black feminism and indigenous feminism is the same because um in new zealand in aotearoa uh, there is this fantastic lady dr elizabeth kerekere k e r e k e r e dr kerekere is one of the leading experts on indigenous gender and uh, sexuality issues in in new zealand in aotearoa and she was elected to the new zealand parliament in the, at the last general election and in her maiden speech in february 2021 uh, there's a line she says saying that okay look our parliament the aotearoa parliament is known in the world for being the most um, uh, most progressive parliament we have a lot of queer mps we have a lot of lgbt mps but i wish to point out that all of us are cisgender 
right? So, uh, and, and explains what cisgender is. And then she says, none of us are transgender. So we need to work to strengthen the representation of trans people in public life, right? So that is a very good example of how indigenous feminist discourses, uh, you know, work with trans rights. Because um, to um, because in indigenous communities you have women of you know women who are not cisgender you have people of different gender identities who are at the core of those feminist movements so um, so those movements uh, are places where trans rights and feminism actually intersect and it's something beautiful it's very progressive it's something that is very much uh, geared towards progressive social transformation. And in some parts of the world now, where I come from, for example, South Asia, we have had this influence of that uniformity, uniform, uniform inducing feminism coming especially from the UK because we were British colonies. And um, when you say feminist in Sri Lanka or in India or in Bangladesh or in Pakistan, those feminist movements used to be exclusively managed by urban upper and upper middle class cisgender able-bodied women. Uh, and uh, trans people were rarely welcome, uh, if ever, in those circles. But now that is starting to change uh, in quite a few countries because there's a younger generation that's emerging the, that has been growing up reading Toni Morrison, reading uh, Black yeah. feminist writing. They've been reading Audre Lorde. Uh, they um, are well connected with new technology and social media and everything they see and hear of what's happening elsewhere in the world. And they think in terms of their own histories, how um, the British tried to suppress indigenous gender identities and sexualities and, uh, and, and so on in, in their own societies. So that younger generation is not gonna have it. They, they are very much uh, focused on progressive social yeah. transformations. Their feminist discourse is also a place where um, uh, trans rights and the feminist movement really intersects. Okay, I have to ask now, because like it was brought up earlier in the podcast and it was just brought up again. So I take that as a sign that it needs to be asked. But so talking about gender, we end up talking also a lot about colonialism. So the thing that I want to ask is that the many diverse, the many gender diverse societies across Asia that you talked about, was transphobia or was like the gender binary, like gender heteronormative gender structures, were those existing or were those already in the places that you mentioned before the arrival of forces from the West or they were purely an import from... Are, let's say, our colonizers. Well, the majority of evidence, the large, the the, the larger, uh, I would say, segment of evidence that's available mm -hmm. points to the fact that uh, Western colonizers, especially 19th century, uh, 18, 17, mm -hmm. 18, 19th centuries, uh, the British, for example, came with what they called Victorian values, which were very much focused on gender segregation, mm -hmm. uh, a certain notion, a domestic, domesticated notion of womanhood, right? Yeah. Uh, the woman as the person looking after the family and, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth, the subdued notion of womanhood. Those concepts, um, were were 
things that were brought by colonizers and uh, forcibly imposed on our societies. Mm-hmm. So in most of the countries and societies that you just mentioned, Cathy, um, there is evidence, there is uh, um, evidence to show that they, um, they approach to gender pluralities or gender diversities yeah. was uh, very different prior to the arrival of, you know, the prior to the strengthening of Western colonial rule. Yeah. For example, in India, there was no such thing actually as India prior to 19, 1947. So it's better mm-hmm. to say Bharat, which is because a big, big subcontinent. So yeah. in, 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 in the in Bharatiya culture or, or the cultures of the multiple cultural traditions of the subcontinent, it is, it has been documented very clearly that uh, trans women, or let's say hijra women, for instance, had uh, had um, you know uh, access to royal courts, had access to you know high places of power. In the Indian subcontinent, people who did not comfortably conform to um, uh, cis uh, male or cis female identities were generally seen as people with uh, a certain um, certain level of supernatural power. So uh, people who would bless, um, you know, uh, newborn babies, for instance, mm-hmm. and certain certain level of uh, um, sacredness was associated with hijra women, for instance, in India. So, which means that there were places, there were there was a there was a society in place, there was a system in place where people who were gender diverse people who were not cisgender were uh, not at the fringes of society. They had a place of um, uh, respect, recognition of agency in their respective societies. And this is what was lost. And uh, just yesterday I was listening to a TV show on Maori TV from Aotearoa, New Zealand, where uh, a feminist activist, a Maori feminist activist says that, womanhood in Aotearoa, historically, women were people who were major decision makers. They were in their iwi, in their their councils, in places where decisions were made. Women had um, a a big say, a, a very strong voice, right? All of those traditions were very violently subdued with the coming of these Victorian yeah. values because where women had to be, you know, all tea drinking, pride and prejudice yeah. type, you know, that <laughs> kind of, you know, domesticated kind mm. of uh, image. They had to correspond to that. So uh, this is where, so col- colonial rule and the imposition of what I would say Victorian or Abrahamic gender binary based uh, value systems, conservative value systems, have had a lasting impact, a negative impact on many parts of the world. You go to Latin American countries, that is what you see. You go to the countries of the, you know, the, the, that were part of the ancient Mayan kingdoms, Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala, and that, that is what you see. You come to North America, to the indigenous territories of, um, to use the indigenous name for this part of the world, Turtle Island, that is what you see. You go to the Asian region, that is what you see. You go to the Pacific, that is what you see. You go to the African continent, once again, if you delve 
deep enough that is what you see so yes the um, colonial rule or rule by steel and power uh, has had lasting a lasting and i would say traumatizing impact on people's cultural traditions and uh, especially when it comes to gender thank you so much for indulging my side question so we've talked so much about thank you so much for setting up all of this all of this context about gender about being transgender, about feminism. So now I want to take us from theory to talk about your experiences because you have like quite extensive experience as an academic, as a politician, as an organizer. Can you talk to us about how your, your being a feminist, how your being a transgender feminist has informed your work in advocacy and in organizing? Uh, surely, Kazi. So firstly, the first way in which it has informed me and, and guided me mm-hmm. is the, um, the, the constant uh, preparedness to take an intersectional approach, I would say. Now mm-hmm. that comes straight from Black feminist work. So this, um, the, in, in the way I understand trans feminism, uh, the most advanced form of trans feminist uh, activity or trans feminist activism is actually an offshoot of Black feminist work. So because Black mm-hmm. trans women have done it in the most, uh, beautiful way, Miss Major, Griffin Gracie, Marsha P. Johnson, uh, and so on. There's a long list of Black women. Uh, some uh, some of the, some Black trans feminists uh, are trans women, some are cis women, uh, and because they've been standing for the rights of cis and trans women. So Black, femi- to me, trans feminism has a lot to do with the legacies and the knowledge systems of black feminism. So mm-hmm. black feminism teaches us this concept of intersectionality. So we none of yeah. us lead single issue lives. So we lead True. multiple issue lives. So we need to look at how we organize uh, our activist work around the diversity of the people who surround us, right? So to constantly keep an eye uh, so that uh, that kind of black uh, trans feminist, or I would say trans feminist of color approach um, to activist work makes you constantly, you know, it keeps you on your toes, you know, to uh, be very conscious of asking yourself these questions uh, like, you know, um, am I doing this in an inclusive way, right? Mm-hmm. Are there any people, are there any demographics, are there any individuals who have, who I have kind of sidelined consciously or unconsciously in my work? What can I do to make my activism better, right? What can I do to sharpen the kind of work I do? So those questions, asking those questions and um, also black feminism teaches us Black trans feminism especially teaches us that the work at hand is a constant process. So it's not an end in itself. So uh, it's I help organize a feminist conference and we do a great conference, do a great mm-hmm. lunch. That's uh, when it ends, we've done the work, it's all over. No, it's not like that. This is a constant process. So we carry the baton as long as we can. And then we pass on the good fight to the younger generation who follow, yeah. who comes after us. So the looking at the work as a constant process. So these are things that uh, I have learned 
through um, you know intersectional feminist especially trans feminist perspectives mm-hmm. uh, to um, i mean these are the things that i have learned uh, to include in my own uh, feminist praxis or activist praxis or political organizing which have been uh, very helpful to me in uh, looking at different blind spots and in, and in making my work critical and relevant and in making my work better because you're constantly uh, checking your work you're constantly reviewing your work you're constantly trying to see, ask yourself how can i do this better next time so that really um, is a is quite a positive force i would say so trans feminist discourse especially trans feminist discourses developed by women of color uh, are um, um, have been you know very uh, very useful and very enlightening to me in my activist work i would say God. So thank you so much for answering that question. I still have so many questions. Like I I love that all of the discussions that have been opened up. Doctor, yeah. I'd like I'd, I'd like to ask since you mentioned, you know, that uh to a dig to there there's some there is some no, noticeable change in the in how societies have been in accepting trans people, right? So there is that change, but and this is uh, more of the pessimist side of me asking, but do you sometimes feel that, you know, there is that tendency that there is a push towards granting more uh, representation, but is there fears that that's really just part of the system trying to say um, performatively, yeah, prop itself Mm -hmm. off, give the veneer of representation diversity, but it's not, there's substantively, there is no, or rather there's very little progress. Do you have those kinds of fears? And if, if it's, if so, how, how do activists try to, how do you counter that? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, Carlo, absolutely. The short answer is absolutely there are those fears at all times. In any social justice or rights movement, for instance, right? For example, in my country, Sri Lanka, a few years ago, there was um, a campaign uh, that called to increase the state budget, the central government's budget uh, allocated to higher education. Uh, it was only 1% of the budget or something allocated mm-hmm. for higher education. They wanted to increase it to 6%. That was the claim. That was a request. Mm-hmm. But what the government gradually did was they called in all the senior academics who were supporting that movement and gave them a salary hike. And that mm-hmm. protest campaign died down. And uh, the budgetary allocation for higher education is still the same. Right. So this is a problem. This exists in different forms in different parts of the world. So as a rights activist, it is very important, like I said earlier in answering Cassie's question there, to understand the work we do as a constant process, you see. And that process, we are going to meet a lot of hurdles, a lot of challenges. And uh, the kind of challenge you're talking about, uh, uh, Carlo, is one that we need to be very conscious of, right? Because um, that question you're asking also connects to something else, that representation matters. Yes, it's important, but representation alone won't cut it either. So for example, in the United States, now we have a state senator who is a trans woman. We had in Aotearoa, New Zealand, Georgina Bayer, legendary woman, a trans woman who became the world's first 
chance woman to become an mp for the first time in the world in 1999 i guess if memory serves me right in the kingdom of thailand there is um, the honorable tanwar in sukapisit who is a member of parliament so the representation matters i mean men when young people especially see you know trans women um, cis women from different backgrounds uh, and uh, disabled women for instance in 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 positions of power and influence that's very inspiring to a younger generation it's important but that alone does not ad- help us address the systemic yeah. issues because what we are trying to do at the end of the day is to transform a very difficult system right a very problematic system so systemic transformation that is what uh, also connects to you know this term liberation it is not yes. about trans mm-hmm. rights we are talking about we should be talking about trans liberation where we don't need a trans rights campaign at the end of the day where trans people would be treated like anybody else would be treated with dignity where um cis women would be treated with dignity where you can uh, irrespective of where you come from you can lead a life of dignity you know with uh, yes. uh, a decent livelihood um, mm-hmm. under good working conditions mm-hmm. good housing and so on and so forth so all these things connect with each other so yes. it is very important to um, look at the me- uh, this the short term medium term and long term goals of what we yeah. do so it is uh, i mean uh, why would you uh, dr elizabeth kerkere this outero uh, politician i was mentioning you uh, mentioning uh, that i mentioned earlier uh, she said uh, she says why would you wake up in the world if not to you know change the world yeah, yeah, uh, so exactly. that is the whole point so we should keep that spirit in mind you know so you come across the temporary obstacle of you know people trying to tokenize you people trying to the powers trying to mess with you then yeah. if your eyes are set on your goals very clearly you should be able to articulate those goals clearly and overcome those obstacles strategically gradually incrementally and move ahead towards the goals that you have set because at the end of the day the society that we need the world that we are striving to create is a world where there is equality there is dignity there is respect uh yeah. where there is a lot of caring for each other and, and and we should you know try to be the difference we want to create in the world in the first place we have to be self critical none of us are perfect we all make mistakes yeah. so when we as rights activists when we take a wrong turn we need to be prepared to admit that we have made a wrong turn there's nothing wrong in that and um and to and to build keep building you know solidarities and support networks and that's the best we can do and also being strategic being strategic in what we do and so anybody listening to this if they have you know if they are a trans person wanting to uh, work towards you know a political office or high office in any other sector absolutely i i would encourage you 100% 1000% to do so um but when you get to a place of influence try to see how you can use that position to advance you know yes. uh, the broader goals of liberation mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. can't change the world in a day rome wasn't built in a day as the, as the saying goes but mm-hmm. you can make a difference yes i love do. that i really love that because like in the philippines we've had our first transgender person re- 
elected to House of Congress, which was just so amazing and it was such a great achievement. But like you said, representation is not enough. So it's not enough that she's there, but she needs to forward an agenda that changes society. And ayun, like I'm sorry, I'm just very because like I've had interactions with her and she seems to remember me for being critical. So I'm just like sorry I'm bringing it up again, but just like it's true. Dr. Chamindra, thank you so much for joining our program. Like, I think it's just been amazing. Yes. So that last point of yours, just perfect way to cap off the podcast. Like, Carla, do you want to say yeah, anything um, or ask any more questions? Yeah, I was going to ask a last, uh, a last like, okay. follow-up mm-hmm. question. Like, since a lot of the discussion really is on trans-feminist or trans-activism, mm-hmm. right? But I, like I, I mentioned earlier, how do we bring in... Um, I think I raised this earlier. How do we bring in people who are not trans or how do you call them? Oh, Cisgender, yeah. yeah. Like allies. Is that, is that the correct term? Yeah, yes, allies. How do you, allies. Or, or, allies yeah. yeah, or not even allies, those who aren't yet identifying as that. How do we broaden oh, the okay. kind of discussion? Since I, I would suppose a lot of these things, when, when you brought it, when you break down some of those concepts, uh, doctor, a lot of them are also the same logic, same type of analysis that you would say a labor activist would have on against capitalism or someone against climate change right it's it it has it's different but it has some similarities right and how you would approach it from a human rights perspective as well right so mm-hmm. but there's also a challenge especially in how but this is because of the existing uh structures that in our society you know the that discriminate against people in the margin how do you bring out uh, people on the margin at the center the, the, the discussion into the center how do you how do we do that I, i'll take it but it's it's a tricky question it's a difficult question yeah. it's a challenging question right it's yeah. a, it is always a challenge how do you bring some uh, progressive discourse that is unfortunately happening uh, on the sidelines or in the fringes yeah. to the so-called center Right. Yeah. One way of doing that, right? This may not always work, but mm-hmm. uh, in some cases it have it has worked in uh, to me. Uh, one way in which you could do that is by reiterating very clearly, especially to allies, to cisgender people, to people who may not necessarily see themselves as directly concerned by trans rights. Yeah, yeah. One way of Uh, doing this is to clearly explain that the body of rights we are talking about is a body of universal human rights. And this is about human dignity we're talking about. This is about gender and social justice we are talking about, right? Therefore, the kind of rights we are talking about concerns absolutely everybody, right? Because um, another way of uh, putting it is the patriarchy, uh, the way patriarchy serves Cassie or me doesn't, um, the patriarchy doesn't distinguish, you know, saying whether yeah. you're cis or trans. The mm-hmm. patriarchy, when it imposes its power, when it imposes its uh, uh, systemic violence and discrimination, um, it goes ahead, it goes right on. So to give an example, for instance, a trans woman, uh, irrespective of where you, wherever in the world you are, for a trans woman in this world, it is very difficult to avail of her reproductive rights. 
right and uh, because there are no uh, proper facilities for that no no uh, healthcare guidelines in place um, and and in some countries trans women have been for a long time um, discouraged from availing from their reproductive rights so in places like finland which is considered as a very progressive country it is even today compulsory for a trans person to go through compulsory sterilization if they want to start a gender affirming process whether you are a trans man or a trans woman you have to go through that process go through compulsory sterilization first and then you can start your gender affirming process so how see how that compares with abortion rights faced very largely by cisgender women and reproductive justice related injustices faced by cis women especially mm. from underprivileged backgrounds right access to contraception access to sex education access to uh, consent education access to agency and all of those things and uh, these realities are linked right so um, very often what we don't really what society doesn't tend to notice is that oppressive systems treat those uh, those who are oppressed with the same spoon right they we are all served with the same spoon so therefore it is very important uh, for us to be conscious and cognizant of what is going on and to make ourselves good allies now myself i am a singhalese woman from sri lanka so my ethnic community is the largest ethnic community in sri lanka so i am a ethnic and ethnicity and religion wise i'm a majority i'm part of the majority community in my country however if i want to become a good rights activist Uh, what kind of rights doesn't matter trans rights or broader lgbtqi plus rights or uh, animal rights or um, environmental rights or climate change related rights in 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 my country in sri lanka if i want to become a good rights activist i simply cannot do that if i'm a racist person if i'm uh, if i'm not conscious of the yeah. issues systemic issues faced by my fellow tamil citizens and my fellow muslim citizens of sri lanka who have been denied burials during uh, because of the covid-19 crisis yeah. but it is uh, the who permits but our government because of basic islamophobia doesn't allow burials of of uh, victims of covid-19 so if i'm not conscious of those things if i can't be a good ally to muslim citizens of my own country my fellow countrymen women if i cannot be a good ally to the tamil community of my country i will never make a good trans rights activist or a good lgbtqi plus rights activist or a good climate change activist so it is very important to send this message that's the answer to your question carlo how effectively you communicate that message of um, uh, intersecting issues you know so that we are not talking about single issue issues as such because um uh, there there is no i mean rights advocacy is not something that you can do in a compartment you know so uh, you can't say that okay right i focus only on trans rights this is what i do yeah. uh, these are my funders i more i more in the morning i talk trans rights lunch time trans rights evening time trans rights and that's all i talk it doesn't work like that so rights advocacy is something it's a web it's interconnected so 
the message to communicate is also that we are talking about an interconnected body of rights. We are talking about inclusive gender justice. We are talking about an equal society, a more progressive society. Yes. We're talking caring. about social transformation mm -hmm. and caring, caring for each other and, and treating each other on an equal footing, right? Yeah. Irrespective of who one, one is, we treat someone as our equal. Right. Yes, those yes. are the concepts, the underlying concepts we're talking about. So we have to really zoom in on those broader realities and concepts and yeah. ideas when yeah. we go to the mainstream. And that is how I think yeah. we can, um, uh, if you if you communicate that message well and clearly enough uh, in an intelligible way, uh, you will develop a strong network of allies. And thank you. Like you said, we don't live single issue lives. Like no one does. All right. Yeah. So Dr. Chamindra, thank you so much for being so patient, for sharing all of your knowledge. My it's been pleasure. really amazing. And so I did neglect to say something during our pre-show reminders, which is that at the end of the segment, at the end of the podcast, you will have the floor to promote anything at all that you want, to share any message that you want. So now that we are coming to the end of our podcast, I will extend to you the same thing we extend to all of our guests, which is I will give you the floor to promote whatever it is that you would like to promote or share any kind of message. So if you have a book or a movie or a mixtape coming out or an album, now would be the time to share it with our audience. Okay. Uh, thank you, Cassie. Thanks very much. So um, there are actually two things coming up. One uh, is in the immediate future. The other one is in a more of a medium term future. Uh, the first one is a, a collection of political commentaries that I have written to the press that I'm going to publish as a collection of selected political commentaries. It's called Crisis Dispatches. And mm -hmm. given the nature of the times we live in, it's going to be published as an ebook um, that's going to be widely available and internationally available and we are going to organize a launch event for that i would say in april time oh. uh in uh so soon. after because our traditional sri lankan new year falls in the middle of april mm. so what's the end of april i would say mm -hmm. uh, and so crisis dispatches that is one and then i am currently finishing up the manuscript of a book about uh, that that kind of encompasses quite a few things that we've been talking about today uh, about uh, trans politics, intersectional feminist politics and reproductive justice. Yes. And uh, so it's a it's an intersectional feminist reading of, um, of of reproductive justice with a special interest, with a special focus on trans and gender diverse people. So uh, that is coming to an end. And uh, uh, so I'm working on the you know, finalities of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's something to come probably towards the end of this year or early next year. Okay. So thank you so much, Dr. Chamindra. So to all of our listeners, we have a book coming out towards the end of April. We will post about it on our Facebook page at Sockdom Asia. And maybe we can also promote it a little bit on our podcast channel. Like we'll figure out how yeah. to do that. Yeah. And For... we have a book coming out at the end of the year. Yes, yes, yes. For the listeners exciting. of the feminism course, so please stay tuned for that on April. Mm -hmm. um, we'll probably ask Dr. Chamindra on the details of if will you be launching the book via is there going to be like an online event people can attend? Absolutely, Carlo. Absolutely. That is the plan to organize an online event, a Zoom event, a Zoom webinar. Uh, mm -hmm. and um, in the webinar format. Uh, so I will certainly be very happy to communicate the, the specifics with you once it is uh, uh, planned and okay. once everything you know, falls into place. 
Okay, thanks. And for those on the podcast listening, so it, it, uh, her book, has, Dr. Chabindra's book has already been published, so don't forget to buy the book. Yeah. That's right. It's, okay. That again is a decolonia- decolonizing peace building is very much, you know, there is an underlying feminist, intersectional feminist, decolonial kind of focus. So corresponds to quite a few things that we've been talking about uh, okay. in this podcast. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Cheminger. We hope to have you with us again to maybe cover a Pleasure. few more questions that we weren't able to cover today. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we are so excited for your upcoming books. Yes, yes. Thanks, Dr. Thank you very for, much, Kazi. Um... Thank you very much, Carlo. Thank you, thank you. So that was our episode with Dr. Chaminja. We couldn't stop calling her doctor. And I really think that it's a Filipino thing. But like, I love it. We have a doctor on the program. She earned it. So I'm going to call her by that. Yeah, I, I kept on calling her Dr. Chamindra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When she yes, insisted like, that, oh, you can call me Chamindra. Yeah, know? they're just Chamindra. Dr. Like, sorry. Chamindra. We're going to enjoy this. Like, I don't I don't know if we're ever going to have occasion to bring a medical doctor on, but like, let's see if we can work that out. <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed this episode about trans feminism. I hope you learned something. I still had so many questions that I wanted to ask Chamindra, but like, we hope for it. We can, maybe we can bring her in for another episode because. It was brought up in the feminist course that this podcast will be used for is that we need to talk about the role of men when it comes to feminism and ending gender-based violence, etc. Which I think would have been so great to ask her, but like we just couldn't anymore because of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank yeah, we should yeah, that's probably also an important thing to discuss. But you know, our participants can also there's also a uh, a wealth of literature that you know, discusses these things. And uh, Dr. Chamindra mentioned a, a few times some names, some famous yeah, authors. Yeah, that, yeah. You could also do some reading on that. That's also, that that will also help in your journey as activists. Mm-hmm. All right. So I, I'm, I'm feeling very good. Like this podcast session made me feel good with all the talk about like a caring world and like how always your activism is always a work of progress. So I feel very encouraged and I'm so pleased about that yeah. because like our episodes so far have been like pretty serious. The one, the last ones that we've recorded, like they were all current events episodes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what did you learn about this uh, specific episode, Cassie? Because me, I learned a lot since um, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not usually, uh, what's this, involved in these kinds of, yeah. Uh, in, in trans rights and trans feminism. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, it was also important for me to learn some of the basic concept and um, hope and uh, Dr. Chaminda at least was able to, patient enough to explain some of those. But how about you? How did you, what did you take away from the discussion? Okay, so gender and feminism is very much my wheelhouse. Like, they're topics that I enjoy a lot and I, I go into them for fun. Something new that I learned today was that when she was talking about um, the trans umbrella in India, about how the hijra do not necessarily fall under the umbrella of transgender rights. So like when you're trying to pass legislation, like one this one legislation is not good for all of them. So they, it really struck me that, wow, there's really just so much diversity. And it's going to be so interesting to think about how we can legislate for all of them. Because... Like everybody is entitled to legal protection. So it's just, it's a, it's a really encouraging challenge moving forward. And it's one that's more like normally it would scare you, but now it's, it's not like that. It's very um, energizing to use a word. Like it makes you excited to like get to work and to do it, to 
do it for all of these people. All right. So thank you. Thank you so much. This has been a really great podcast episode. We hope everybody listening has enjoyed it. If you would like to give any input for future episodes, we would love to hear from you. So again, thank you so much for joining the Sock Them Asia podcast. My name is Cassie. And my name is Carlo. And we will see you in our next episodes. Bye!